So this is the new moon and uh, the observance day Uposata these uh, reflections over the years like 40 years now for me Patimoka and observance nights and so this is like it has a a kind of effect on on the consciousness like Patimoka I find uh, when I first was a new monk and I attended Patimoka I, I just kind of put up with it because you know, some monk would sit there and recite 227 rules in Pali and and then I'd sit there waiting for it to finish and couldn't see the point of it, thought it was clinging to rites and rituals and what kinds of negative criticisms would arise. And then I thought, I'll never, I'll never do that. I'm here to, for the real practice, you know, samadhi, mindfulness, nibbana. There's a conceit of somebody who, you know, who's got good ideas and critical mind and can he, you know, easily misunderstand or fail to appreciate something in the tradition. So over the years, like in living within a traditional form, the, the tradition has had a profound uh, kind of influence. It's, you know, this is, has a good uh, effect. So I was finding like the Padimoka recitations, Port Lightly recitations, very meaningful to me as a, a kind of sense of where all the bhikkhus gather together and and this kind of uh, this ancient tradition is being kept and uh, it isn't necessary to understand all the rules you know perfectly in Pali that's being terribly idealistic and and kind of utilitarian because it works on a different level really so that's on a much more kind of level of the consciousness of just uh, skillful action, uh, meeting together, the, the renunciate part where we, we give up our own kind of views and ways to kind of learn how to live with each other as a sangha rather than expressing my individualism and making that the important way I, I live in the world. So there's a lot of goodness that one experiences in monastic life. And I look back over 40 years of, of uh, living as a Buddhist monk and all the kind of Generosity extended to me, Good, you know, kindness, uh, encouragement, and, uh, generosity on a material level, 
uh, offerings of food and requisites every day and opportunities made available to me. So this is a reflecting on the goodness of the life uh, because in, in my experience of Sangha life it, it's been, you know, a good experience in, in terms of the kind of the tradition, the support, even from the from Thailand and from the the Thai Sangha, the Thai Sangha in uh, in in Thailand and in Bangkok has also been very supportive, helpful, encouraging. So this is what I'm doing now: is reflecting on the goodness that I personally have experienced as a human individual. Now this is a, this is a way of I think at this time very important to to bring into consciousness the goodness that one is the goodness in oneself and the and the kindness and the goodness in others. Now there's a meditation I do called I, it goes like this I sympathetically rejoice in the vast oceans of good actions performed by conscious being since beginningless time. And so this is a kind of like mudita, development of the Brahma Vihara of mudita, sympathetic joy. And this, has, you know, and brings this into consciousness, the vast oceans of good actions performed by conscious beings since beginningless time. That's quite an interesting thing to think. And of course, it's you know, it, vast oceans of good ac- actions of beginningless time is, means, you know, in terms of my experience of time, you know, from the very beginning to the present, the myriad uh, amount of good actions performed by conscious beings. And then, so this is bringing into consciousness the basic goodness of of uh, beings, human beings, or other beings, because of the also the, when you know the the problems of the world are such that one it brings up one's critical faculties into kind of dominate, dominating one's conscious life. All the problems of the Middle East and. Afghanistan and the in unfairness, injustices, the corruption, the self-interest, the meanness, the prejudice, and all that that one hears about so much can create a very negative uh, way of experiencing life. And when we do that, of course, then we forget. We, we don't make conscious that the basic goodness, the underlying goodness, compassion, the way people help each other, the way mothers uh, care about their children, or uh, fathers working to support families, or uh, just selfless actions, just even rather, you know, it needn't be anything grand, the of neighborliness or kindness, willing to 
help somebody else or take an interest in what somebody else is doing or whatever way, you know, being kind to animals. So in this way we we realize that this is, is natural too, so it goes on, uh, you know, but it, it doesn't get into the news, it's not news making, it's not sensational. You know, so it doesn't, you know, you can't, you don't see it in headlines. But it is the, behind all the corruption, the meanness, the warlike, aggressive, blaming attitudes that people have and nations have towards each other. There's also this this kindness. So this brings up a joy in the goodness of others, the goodness of of creation, the beauty of creation, the goodness that we're experiencing. Now how does this affect consciousness then? You know, it's, a, it's so easy, you know, the mind is conditioned, at least my my conditioning is very much one to be critical and to uh, to give the importance to the one person that's causing trouble or the defect or the the thing that irritates me or whatever be, become obsessed or give so much importance to the spot on the wall the stain or the irritation so it, it has the kind of deliberate intention uh, deliberately seeing the value you know, recognizing the importance of on the conditioned realm of being a Buddhist monk living here in in England, here in Amravati, with these this Sangha, these lay people, this community, the surrounding community, uh, recollecting, bringing into consciousness the kindness, the thoughtfulness, memories of way individuals have expressed kindness or help, encouragement generosity. And in this way it, it, may, it makes one feel a sense of peacefulness and, and love for beings rather than the other way which makes me tend to you know feel kind of weary of life and uh, bored and kind of fed up. When I just look at what's wrong with the society I'm in then I I get fed up with it. What I don't like, what I, what irritates me, what I don't agree with, what what's wrong, and I, I just get fed up. Really, just want to get out. And my seventy-second birthday coming up the day after tomorrow, that people keep wishing I'll live for many years, uh, you know, to a hundred or so. And and when I'm in my fed-up mood, that's the last thing I want to do. <laughs> is live a hundred years, you know, have to, well, how many more years, you know, 28 more years. I mean, just, you know, the dreariness, boredom, and, and all the little quibbling, niggling things community life brings in, and problems, personal problems, and complaints. And, and then I think, I just, leave me alone. I just hope I die soon because I'm fed up with all this.
So then in terms of dwelling on the goodness, the generosity, that brings up different mental states. The, the vast notions of good actions performed by conscious, the conscious beings, that could be dogs or horses or cats. You know, it doesn't necessarily say human beings, does it? Could be devas or brahmas, angels. Or just little things, like I find human kindness really moves me. When people are very kind to me, I find it emotionally very moving. I, I get this pity, this sense of, you know, tears come to the eyes. And out of, when I see real human kindness, selflessness, and so this is like, like mudita, a sense of, you know, one sees the goodness and the beauty, is aware of that, making, allowing that to be acknowledged. And in oneself too, you see the, the goodness within myself as this, this being here. So in terms of thinking, developing thought, this is a, uh, you know, the, the thinking process can be used just habitually, you know, just think, 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 worry, 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 what's going to happen, uh, what'll happen when Najan Samedo dies, what'll happen when the king of Thailand drops dead, who will be the king of England after Queen Elizabeth kicks the bucket. <laughs> what are we going to do with the Bush administration, the Blair, the Israelis and all the rest. The greediness, the self-interest, the, the meanness, the, the miserableness of human beings. Or, you know, that is a, that's the negative side of it. Not to, you know, not try to convince oneself that it's all good. It's not goody good or, or you're just trying to pretend everything is perfect. But it is an honest reality, isn't it? It's real. I've experienced so much kindness and generosity in my life. It's just this one, one being here. So, I can't deny that. I can't always say I've, I've, I've never felt I've really deserved it that much. It's always amazed me. Uh, you know, I'm not, I tend to be, be critical of myself, so I'm always quite moved by the kindness, encouragement, generosity that, that I've had in the past and that I still receive now. So that takes memory, doesn't it? We're bringing it into consciousness. So it brings a lovely state of consciousness into the present. So in, uh, in my, before I became a monk, you know, this was not part of American culture to think of all the goodness of others. <coughs> so we were, we were definitely primed for criticizing, blaming, fault-finding. <coughs> At least uh, I was. And so it was always like blaming, you know, government or parents or neighbors or another group of people or whatever. That the, because they're the cause of suffering, they're the mis ones that cause the misery in the world. And I remember after, right after the, during the Second World War, you know, the, the Soviet Union were allies to the 
British in the United States. And I remember there used to be movies in the 40s, you know, during the war about the great Soviet heroes and they were always kind of exciting films about heroic efforts and sacrifice and from the Soviet, the communists. And then, of course, the Nazis were the bad ones. They were all bad, wicked, nasty creatures in the Japanese. <laughs> so, this is propaganda. Now, I was a child then, so, and this effect, I was a terror. I, I loved the, the movies, the cinema, and, and my father was always quite sympathetic with uh, things like socialism, and he, uh, and, uh, you know, I even suspect he was sympathetic with communism. And it was all right during the, uh, during the war. But right after the Second World War, suddenly the Soviets became the enemy. They were bad in every way. And so I remember being confused because, you know, the day before they were our best friends and now they're despicable enemies. And we have to arm ourselves, protect ourselves because they intend to take over the United States and make us all slaves. So fortunately, I'm not, even then I wasn't too gullible. I didn't quite believe it because, you know, I was quite impressed, you know, with, with the propaganda that I'd received, sympathetic propaganda for the Soviets during the war. And then suddenly, overnight, it just changes. I remember being very confused by that. So propaganda works like that. If you want to, you know, to create prejudices and uh, hatred, you know, to have an enemy, you have to, you have to uh, dehumanize them. If you think of the enemy as, uh, as a human being, you, we couldn't, you wouldn't have the uh, momentum to, to fight them or kill them. But if you can demote the enemy into monsters, subhuman monsters, uh, psychopaths, madmen, and so forth, and, and the evil, you know, taken over by all the evil forces, that's propaganda, isn't it? The enemy has to be demonized. And then you create this, this mental state where it's a noble act to murder them, to kill them. They should be eradicated. Because there's a logic there, you know, in the thinking process. The good should be promoted and the evil should be eradicated. It should be destroyed. And that's, uh, that's simplistic, but it's logical in terms of, of uh, the thought process. So then, you know, and that's, that's uh, the way the thinking mind can be conditioned. We can be brainwashed, conditioned with prejudices. That's what prejudices are. You're, you're told, you know, people in authority are brought up with biases or attitudes where some, some group is demonized or despised or blamed. Anti-Semitism is like that. And that was, you know, the Jews were demonized by the Christians for centuries. And that's propaganda. That's how you, you create these, you know, you form these, the, you get these impressions, maybe part of a cultural attitude, a nationalistic uh, identity. 
and then you dwell on everything that's wrong with them. You know, so you you make them look like demons. You you only you know you spread terrible rumors and anything they do wrong or any bad thing they've ever done you exaggerate. So it makes them all bad. If one does some criminal act, then they're all that way. Now this is you know the the thinking mind is not a trustworthy one when it's merely conditioned, when we have no perspective, when we, when we aren't awakened. So our thinking process can be just blind us. The conditioning is like that, it's brainwashing, you know, com- feeding us misinformation to make us either obedient and frightened one way of controlling people is making them frightened. So when people are frightened of you, they tend to submit and obey. Now in, uh, in uh, Buddhist meditation, the, the emphasis on the human side, you notice the Four Noble Truths. Uh, this teaching, this, this, this sutta we chanted this evening, uh, uh, Four Noble Truths based on dukkha or suffering, this is a common human experience. I mean, every human being can relate to these four noble truths. Suffering, old age, sickness, loss of the love, having to be with the unloved. Uh, you know, all these are just common to every human being, good or bad, male or female, civilized or uncivilized or whatever. This is the, the common bond of, of humanity. And so the Buddha placed the emphasis on a common experience, not on a special one for special people or a special culture. That's why uh, in modern Britain, you know, the Four Noble Truths rings as, you know, resonates as truth as no doubt it did in uh, India at the time of the Buddha. Because we can all, as human beings, when we, when we understand dukkha and suffering, then we have compassion, you know, for all beings. And the, the differences in culture, race, gender, class, religion, ethnic background or whatever, this seems irrelevant when we recognize, realize the common human bond. And so we feel, we feel the suffering of others. And so when you hear the news about, the, you know, the, what's going on in, in Lebanon and Israel, you feel this, this sense of real sadness, you know, the kind of brutal uh, way that these two countries are attacking each other. There's no recognition, there's no mudita, is there? Metta, mudita, totally absent. It's all blame. Uh, You listen to the news, each side blames the other, you know, from a very righteous position. Righteousness is quite cruel, isn't it? It's, uh, you know, you're wrong and you've got to pay for it. I'm going to punish you. Because you're wrong, you're the bad one, and we're right. It's our right to punish you when you bomb our people. And I will see that you will pay for that so you'll never do it again. 
And I can understand the, the emotion, actually. It's not that that feeling has never arisen in me. <laughs> um, I, it's not an emotion that I want to follow because it is an ugly emotion. It, it's painful to be, to feel the revengeful, wanting to get even, wanting to harm somebody, wanting to make them suffer because you feel they, they deserve it. They've done something to me, so I must pay them back. Now that, I understand it. I've had that same feeling. But with reflecting on that feeling, it's a painful one. It makes me mean-hearted. If I should grasp that and use that for my life's work to seek revenge on the enemy, then I'm going to be a kind of demonic spirit operating in the world, aren't I? I'm going to, that's going to dominate my life. And it can completely upset me. Revenge. Now in the awakened consciousness then, when one is awake, one is aware of that. Of the suffering. Of hating and and resenting and blaming and of just being critical and and whinging and complaining bitching about things so in the in monastic sangha for example the, these reflections on the you know the the renunciate side of of uh, Buddhist monasticism is not a kind of, of uh, asceticism based on, you know, to deny ourselves pleasure because it's sinful. It's not, there's nothing puritanical in Buddhism. Unless you want to make it so. If you want to make it into puritanism, one, one can do so. But that puritanism is fear of evil and, and uh, you know, feeling that one's energies and one's humanity is filled with evil and I must purify it by persecuting myself and torturing myself and disciplining myself uh, out of that desire to purify myself is an illusion. doesn't lead towards happiness. So in there's a attakilamatanu yoko the one extreme of asceticism Call his suffering miserable way to live. And in Dharmasukalikanyoko, the other extreme, he is trying to find happiness in three senses in the world. Mind looking to me, hearing is mine, and I eventually start my happiness. Good time, pleasures. So these two extremes, Dharma Sukalikanu Yoko, Atakilamatanu Yoko. And in the Machima Bhattibhata, of course, is the way of mindfulness. So reflecting on Buddhist monasticism isn't, uh, you know, it can be seen as Atakilamatanu Yoko, as a kind of asceticism. But in 40 years now being a Buddhist monk, It's, uh, you know, what I find the result of it is, is not, you know, des- desperately trying to control my 
sex drive and, and uh, keep myself under control through rigid adherence to, to prohibitive rules. But it leads towards simplification. Life is simple now. Leads towards contentment. You don't need a lot. You don't have to have a lot of things. You don't, you don't have to spend your time looking for happiness and adventures and so forth. You have contentment, then gratitude, because in this life it brings out the monastic sangha, brings out goodness in others. You notice how well this monastery is supported. It brings out opportunity for generosity from the lay community. Um, they have gratitude and appreciation. So they, they feel it gives them an opportunity to, to do good action. And, and, and for selfish reasons. sense of sympathetic joy. It's not just, you know, not just a, a holding to grasping goodness because one is afraid of evil, but it is an honest honesty uh, and, and, a, and a, which bring, it opens the heart, the heart chakra suddenly opens up. You know, you're not, it's not a logical, reasonable feeling. It's a, it's an intuition. It's a, a, a joy. That, that comes to us when we open and, and love and appreciate. Contentment, in this life. Then in the, in Thailand, I remember the. Uh, And so, you know, in uh, my own experience living in uh, Thai forest monasteries, you know, you were more or less assigned to different kutis, huts. And sometimes they were very nice, and sometimes they weren't very nice <laughs> in terms of the, you know, the quality. And I remember the first. the monastery where it was built for Thai-sized monks. So, you know, I had, I, in order to live there, I had to bend over double to live there. The door frames were always, you know, shorter than I am. They, of course, it may, you know, I had to be mindful, otherwise I'd have uh, brain concussions all the time. 
And the beams inside, you know, if you got caught up too quickly, you crash your head into a beam. And so I, you know, and I complained about this. I said, you know, and uh, and then I made a reasonable thing. I saw another kuti off in the forest. You know, like I like to live way out, away from everything. So, and and this kuti there, this kuti with a low ceiling, was right in the middle, in the old uh, where the action took place. So, I found this kuti, empty kuti, way out in the forest, and it was a you know taller kuti inside. So I asked for this one, and of course, Ajahn Chah wouldn't give it, wouldn't let me stay there. <laughs> so, so then I began to, you know, because he wouldn't go along with my complaints, but I began to see what I was doing, because I like, like the reflection is a, a shelter for the night, to keep the rain off of the sun. Now, tin roofs aren't necessarily aesthetically pleasing to Westerners, but they do keep the rain off very well. <laughs> and then, uh, and then the, uh, uh, you know, one could begin to, to appreciate, you know, rather than thinking, I want to have a proper kuti, I began to develop that sense of, of, uh, it's a shelter for one night. And over the years in Thailand, I did that. In Wat Chat, when we first established Wat Chat, 1975, you know, there was nothing there. And uh, so we lived out un in umbrellas, these two dong umbrellas with mosquito nets for several months. And then, the, the, you know, the rainy season was approaching. And the villagers were building kutis. So they built me a grass-roofed bamboo hut. And so I lived in that for the time that I was lived at Wat Nanachat, the bamboo hut. Which was very, you know, I quite liked actually. It was simple and I was quite idealistic at the time. So I, you know, I, I didn't, I mean, I wouldn't have wanted a nice fancy kuti like I have now. <laughs> I was more, <laughs> you know, into into more the the minimal standard. But I did, you know, reflect on it. And it was uh, it had its uh, faults. One thing it it uh, didn't have a lot more insects in it and things like this. But uh, otherwise, it was it was quite quite livable little hut. And then coming to uh, live in England, you know, living in a, uh, you know, in, in London, and then in Chitters, where we lived in this, this dilapidated, derelict old house, with the roof falling in sometimes, and the, and then you know, then the, there was a lot of questions about whether we'd be able to stay there because actually, you know, it was quite a, you know, it wasn't. You know, if anybody'd looked too closely from the council, it was seen it was could be considered a dangerous place to live in.
So then the worries about getting permission or keeping chitters would arise, and then I'd keep reflecting. We used to share rooms there. We didn't have our private rooms, uh, and we live in this moldy old house. And we would, uh, and then I reflect, it's a shelter for one night. And this always put it into perspective, you know, the life, uh, you know, the the one side was I came to England, I want to establish this monastery, this is a really nice place. We've got to be sure that we legally own this place and that we can build a proper Buddhist monastery in the UK and and we can't let them kick us out. And we've got to make sure, build a monastery that lasts a thousand years and on and on like this. But then what does that do to the mind, you know, when when I get caught in in that kind of mind state, you know, we've got to fight off the, you know, the people that want to kick us out. We've got to make sure we, we have it all legally done up and it's ours and legal and charitable and and that it's ours to be Buddhist for a thousand years or a shelter from the rain from when the sun for one night. So I, I, you know, I began to see just by testing it out in my mind, one would bring, you know, a sense of grasping and worry into my mind, the other would be a sense of gratitude. I have a roof for one night. And then the sense of gratitude arises. At least that's what happened to me. Now this is, uh, you know, you begin to, you, I can't make you do this or, you know, that's something you can, even when you force people and they just feel you're trying to make them think something they don't feel. But so it's, it's not just a, you should be grateful and content but it's an encouragement towards looking at, at what is suffering, what is dukkha, and what is peacefulness, happiness, contentment. And this you have to see for yourself. You have to test it out, find out what is, what brings a, a kind of pity or, or rapture and the jhana factors, pitisukha. Rapture, happiness, tranquility is through reflecting and, and you know seeing the that on the on the thinking level the reflecting on the, the goodness the shelter for one night not the not the fact that the shelter is maybe not that great but it is well it's certainly better than the root of a tree which is the basic allowance for bhikkhus. You try to live at the root of a tree in this country, in Thailand it'd be easier <laughs> because it is uh, tropical. So in, in, the, in training yourself as Buddhist samana, this is the way to do it, like the complaining about inequalities or unfairness or, or uh, you know, the the way that we can envy or project onto each other all kinds of things or the personal feelings uh, that we might have can be seen and recognized and recognize it and then the inquiring into is grasping this what is the result of grasping
So don't, don't be afraid of grasping things, but get to know what it's like to grasp. So you know, you, you know what, what, what suffering is. You're not just rationally kind of holding to the idea that you shouldn't grasp anything. But if you, you know, really grasp things to, and observe, you know, observe what obsession is, what negative thinking is, how it affects, you know, and, and, and reflect on, is this, is this what I want to live with? Is this how I want to be? <clears throat> when I first, at Wapo, you know, I, I'm a, I'm, I have a complaining nature, a whinger. So, you know, I went there, I started you know, I, I started, you know, periods of time go through complaining, whinging about things. And then I, one day I remember having the insight of just listening to myself complaining. And then I thought, do I want to be reborn in another lifetime just to complain? Spend 72 more years complaining in the next lifetime? <laughs> And I think, well, that's what's going to happen if I know, you know, this is, this is not what I want to be. This is not how I want to live, is in this state of complaining. So by inquiring about it and observing it, admitting it, then, of course, they didn't want to do that, you know. I could let go of it. I could... Re- release myself from that. I saw it as just a habit, a habit I'd acquire. Then in, in this life of Buddhist Samana is we are, you know, we're a source of bringing goodness into the society, like, like uh, see our existence here in England now. See, this is the place where goodness is encouraged, generosity, morality, things like this, meditation. Where this is encouraged and 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 physically one has the facilities to provide to help people, so that the this ancient tradition then is a blessing to this country. You know, we can see that our existence here as a Buddhist sangha is a blessing to to England, rather than just a divisive religion or a cult or you know, we're here to convert or, you know, put down other religions or cause more problems to this society than it already has. So one begins to, you know, really develop a sense of confidence in, in, the, in, in using, in living in a way as a human individual in a society like this one. That, be, that is beneficial to me personally and to the others, to the society itself. And societies need places where they can, they need churches and mosques and places where they can come out of the stress and busyness and problems of worldly life just to get perspective or some kind of at least temporary peace from it. Now we can become a curse to the country if we want. 
if we create more prejudices and and uh, you know criticisms and self-centered investment in our survival at the expense of everyone else. But you notice how the Buddhist Sangha is, you know, the Buddha established it in a way that it is dependent on alms. You know, so an alms mendicant monastic order survived 2,550 years. You know, that's quite impressive to me. It's on the level of survive. How many, how many institutions have survived from 2,550 years ago? And this one has survived because, you know, it's based on a universal meditation on, on the common human bond of humanity, of suffering, and the reality of non-suffering. Non-suffering is the Eightfold Path. That's real. That's not just some hoped-for attainment in the future. It's through this awakened attention to what goes on inside us and learning what causes, what is the cause of misery and pain, worry, resentment, negativity. And by investigating that, not to take it in some kind of personal, critically uh, personal way, but to, to observe, you know, that dukkha, the causes, the origins, the cessation, the way, is about the jitta, about the mind, is about consciousness, understanding and letting go, liberation, seeing the Dhamma, knowing the truth of the way it is. So I offer this as a reflection for this evening.